Hello and welcome to the GLT podcast series with the Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club, where we talk all things teaching and learning with leading educationalists across the world. My name is Rhiannon Rainbow. And my name is Dave Tushingham. This is a place to enjoy listening to organic conversations between teachers and authors, a journey in bringing the latest evidence-based literature into the classroom. Right, ready. Hello and welcome to our 10th podcast for the Greenshaw Learning Trust Book Club. Well, we'll be talking with Gemma Sherwood on the book, How to Enhance Your Mathematics Subject Knowledge. Let's get stuck in. Just to let everybody know that we are now recording. So fantastic. So what I would like to do, please, is welcome everybody to this session of the Greenshaw Learning Trust Book Club. And I'm very, very excited that we're going to be joined by Gemma Sherwood. We're going to be looking at her cracking book and Dave's going to talk a little bit about that shortly. And to start with, I'm going to just give a brief introduction about Gemma. So Gemma is Senior Lead Practitioner for Maths at the Ormiston Academy Trust. I think you started that this term, is that right Gemma? Yeah, I'm only two weeks in. <laughs> Previously you were Head of Maths um, it include, uh, with a school that included sixth form. You're a governor at a primary school. PD lead for the NCETM, your creator of um, the education blog gemmathswordpress.com, and you're also the author of the great book that we're looking at this afternoon. So thank you so much for your time today. Um, not only that, but we'll, I'd like to introduce Sadeep as well, if I may. He's going to be doing our takeaway for today's session. So he's at boss underscore maths on Twitter and his website is cracking and we also have Charlotte who is um, at Mrs Hawthorne 7 who's going to be doing our sketch note and you can find some cracking stuff from her at sketchcpd.com as well so welcome everybody that's enough from me I'm going to hand over to the thinking behind everything we do at book club which is Dave So I'll unmute so that will help. Um, thank you very much, Gemma, um, for joining us and thanks, Ree, for the, the introduction. Um, it was um, a really easy decision to, to bring this book into our book club um, and, uh, and something that's really connected with me, um, with the book itself and, and why it's relevant to, to us, I think, in particular at this stage was some of the sessions that we've had previously. Um, and how some of the sessions about curriculum, about coaching, um, about the, the use of literacy um, previously as well, have all come into to the, the importance of subject knowledge and, and how, how we really need to know deeply um, our misconceptions when we were talking to Harry Fletcher Wood, for example, um, in order to be able to support our students progress. And, and the more sessions I've gone to and the more sessions I've been a part of, the more I've realised that my subject knowledge is, is okay. Um, I can teach maths, I can do maths, I understand many of the misconceptions that students have, but there's so much that I don't know and there's so much more that I could learn in order to further support those students. And um, if I want to, to sequence a curriculum, for example, or if I want to get that um, timely feedback and know when to do it, all of these things fall around knowing your subject incredibly well. So, so this book for me was um, just an absolute must-have. Um, and when reading through it, um, trying to choose a chapter, I'll be honest, I've changed my mind four or five times on, on what I think that we should go through here. 
um, ratio kept popping into mind. Um, but I just think that the multiplicative thinking is is what underpins mathematics and, and a lot of what we do. And, um, and I just thought that was a, a really powerful chapter to be looking at. And, and I also want to learn loads more and, and love a, a double number line. And, and I just the idea when I was going through the book of, um, of sort of picking up ideas from people there, I got very selfish and went, that's what we're going to have a look at then. And so that's the extract we've been looking at. Um, but Jim, if I just hand uh, to yourself, just to sort of introduce yourself in the book and, and, uh, and just thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's really interesting that you've picked chapter three, um, this multiplicative thinking chapter, because I think if I were to ever get the opportunity to do a second edition, this is the one that would probably end up being twice as big as it is now. Um, because I think even, I, I wrote this book in 2018 and since I did, um, and, and in fact, I think it was writing this that prompted me to think about multiplicative reasoning in a lot more depth. And um, my own thinking has come on loads since then. Um, and it's really what you say about subject knowledge is hugely important, actually, because I've been teaching 17 years now um, and I still don't feel like I've got a handle on this or really any topic properly, because I don't think you really ever can, because I think every time you learn something new, you just increase your connections between different areas of maths and you increase your own schema. Um, and that just makes you better at what you do, doesn't it? So it's hugely important to keep reflecting on everything that we do and looking for ways to deepen our own understanding as teachers, because in doing so, it's going to improve what we do in the classroom as well. Um, so I'm really glad you picked this one because I, yeah, I, I think I missed loads out. I missed out uh, linking it to, uh, well, I was going to say I, I missed out linking it to geometry, um, but then I was explicitly told that going into geometry and stats would make the book far too big. So let's not go there. So maybe there were there were some natural limits on what I was doing. Um, was there a, a bit of it you wanted to start on? So, um, well, for me in particular, um, if, I, if I could be selfish then in terms of um, opening up to the floor um, as well, but um, just just sort of talking about the, the multiplicative thinking and, and how those um, double number lines are, are used and, and sort of examples really of how I could deepen um, student understanding in the classroom through through trying to trying to use something visual so I'm really interested in, in when you would use them um, how, how they would support the students and trying to sort of over over time trying to understand that journey myself but um, but yeah just um, just interested more on, on sort of your examples and ideas and thoughts and maybe and maybe sort of what your further thoughts are since as you said um, from writing it uh, what you might add to it as well what are the things that, that you think are missing that we could really learn from in, in that too? Well, the double number lines, um, they are very powerful, actually. They, I first came across them with the ICAMS project, um, which was uh, a, a, a project undertaken by a, a number of researchers into improving multiplicative reasoning in school students. Um, and they talked a lot about the double number line. Um, and what I love about it is the fact that it conveys the, um, the stretch or the squash involved in multiplicative thinking. And it shows you how you can compare two numbers that on a different scale, if you like. So I think the, one of the things that underpins um, proportional reasoning and multiplicative thinking is this idea that um, it, it's a good way of comparing numbers that are on a different scale. Um, and by that, there's actually, it talks about it in this book, <laughs> another book now, which is Key Ideas in Teaching Maths by Anne Watson. Um, and she talks about a lot of the research around multiplicative thinking and ratio in one of her chapters. 
Um, and she said that when we think about comparing quantities, we can talk about, we can think about the difference between two quantities. So let's say you talk about the distance from home to school and then from home to the shops. And you can compare those distances in miles, um, but you're using two quantities that are in the same units there. So the difference um, as a comparison is you, you're, you're forced to stick within a single unit of measurement. Whereas the minute you move to ratio or proportion or multiplicative thinking, you open up a whole new world because you compare things, you can compare things that are in completely different units of measurement. So speed is the classic example. It's a comparison between distance and time. And these two things are completely unrelated in a purely measurement form until you introduce the concept of speed, which is the way of linking the two and the ratio of one to the other. So um, multiplicative thinking in itself is hugely more powerful than additive thinking because it allows us to compare across, across quantities. And the double number line is just another illustration of that. Uh, a really nice example is the idea of um, percentages. And I think I'll find it here on page uh, 111. I did a, a, a double number line or a triple number line where it showed you how you can, uh, you can take the numbers from 0 to 250 and squash that number line to make it fit from 0 to 100. And then you can make a direct comparison to see what 10% is, 20% is, 30% and so on. And of course, you could extend that if you wanted to, but then you can also do the same thing with a smaller number line from say 0 to 60, I've got on the diagram here, and you can stretch it out to make it fit from 0 to 100. Um, and you can show how this measurement of percent allows you to compare two different scales. Um, but the whole idea of thinking multiplicatively is very difficult for students. There's a, there's a lot to master. And, and I think I certainly have been guilty over the years of not giving it enough attention. Um, in particular, the idea that you can multiply and make something smaller. So the idea of multiplying by numbers between zero and one. I think I was very guilty as a younger teacher of touching on it in the idea of multiplying two fractions together, for instance, or a whole number by a fraction or a whole number by a decimal, but not really teaching the, the idea or the concept that you can make a number smaller through multiplication and what that really means um, and the implications that that has. So the double number line can illustrate that very nicely as well. I was no, going to say that. Thank you. That's that is incredibly reassuring, and I'll I'll, I'll say that because. Um, it wasn't until I started the NCETM course this year that I'd even really used the phrasing multiplicative reasoning. And I've been teaching for nearly 20 years. I hadn't really, um, it, it's, I taught these things, but I haven't considered it with the same depth. And I think I've, I've missed, I've missed a trick. No, not a trick. I, I just realized that there seems to be this quite a large chasm now of subject knowledge and awareness and ideas and opportunities for linking things that I had been using before, but not explicitly stating or labeling or naming and then making links to other aspects of maths as well, because so much time has gone into the process rather than the why. So even sort of nearer 20 years down my teaching, this book has been absolutely priceless. So for example, I was prepping for a session with some colleagues uh, 
from my area. And I'm so used to writing geometrical reasoning that when I was meant to be doing multiplicative reasoning, I actually put on the form geometrical reasoning because that's what I'm used to thinking about from a secondary point of view. And so it was really just really refreshing. Thank you so much for, for saying that you also have come to it um, uh, sort of a, a little bit later on and it's an area that you wanted to develop. Um, so Richard, sorry, is, sorry carry on. There. Reasons for this as well and I, anybody who was at my talk at the MA conference a few weeks ago will have heard me say about the um, the old national curriculum and how it was really substandard when it came to ratio and proportion I think it was mentioned once or twice um, whereas they deliberately kind of rebranded it if you like in the new curriculum gave it its own strand and explicitly tried to draw out the things that are ratio and proportion which means that it forces us to think about it more and it forces us to consider how many different areas of maths are all actually just this idea of proportional reasoning or multiplicative thinking. Because otherwise, as you say, you might students might really come across that idea of things getting smaller when you're multiplying when it comes to similar shapes mm. and scale factors of enlargement. And often that, that tends to be one of the first times they really think about it previously when it was um, the, the old national curriculum. So Richard, you've put something really interesting in the chat. Um, he said he loves the word squash and stretch with regard to multiplicative thinking, and he doesn't think he uses them enough. Absolutely fantastic reflection there, Richard. Do you want to, uh, I wondered if you wanted to come in and just talk a little bit more about that or ask Gemma a question about that? Sorry, he's on mute, so I'll give him a moment. He might not want to. He doesn't really have a question. Never mind. Thank you very much. But if so, do you use that vocabulary specifically then, squash and stretch more in your in your teaching to help convey that idea of multiplicative um, thinking? Um, not hugely. I would. I'm trying to think when I use it now. I would use it when we're talking about graphs, trying you know stretching and squashing graphs, um, and uh, shapes when we're talking about enlargements. Do I talk about it in generally in multiplication? No. Should I? Now that's an interesting question. Perhaps because I'm really thinking out loud now. Um, one of the things that I do talk about early on in the book is this idea of, uh, but I don't mention it explicitly, and this is where my thinking has kind of moved on now. I do talk about on page 104 about um, the idea of a stretch and a squash, and I drew, I've got the diagrams there with arrows mapping one, one set of numbers to another set. Um, I, I really like the idea of putting vectors to represent numbers on a number line now. Um, and it ties in beautifully with the diagram that I did on page 108. So there's this diagram of 108 about proportional reasoning. And it says what you do to one to get you get to what you do to one to get to four, you must do to three to get to 12. And then on the same uh, at the same kind of diagram, but interpreting it the other way around, what you do to one to get to three, you must do to four to get to 12. And it's that operator what you do to one number to get to the other that represents the uh, proportional reasoning or the multiplicative thinking and i'm using those two phrases interchangeably at the moment um 
what I also like is how representing numbers on a number line with as vectors links to this, because if you imagine a vector representing the number one, so an arrow going from zero to one, and then stretching that vector out by, say, a scale factor of three, you then have a vector that represents the number three. Now, you could do the same thing then with a vector showing number two and stretch it out by a scale factor of three to show the number six. Um, and although one of them is longer than the other, it's the stretch itself that's the multiplicative thinking or the proportional reasoning and if you apply that stretch or a squash to if you apply the same stretch or squash to any numbers you are doing the same thing there it's the same relationship that's happening and it's that relationship that's proportional reasoning um, Charlotte said I showed this on a graph in my MA talk. Yeah, I actually had, I'm glad Sudeep's here, um, Sudeep actually made, I, I went out on Twitter and said, can anybody do this for me because I've just thought about it and I don't have time to make it and Sudeep went, there you go, <laughs> magically produced it for me, which was fabulous. Um, but I don't have it on my computer now, so I can't show it. But yeah, it was, it was, it was just that. So you can stretch um, a vector out. It also showed how you can rotate it about zero to show um, a multiplication by negative number as well. So you can start to bring in links to all sorts of other areas, but through the same representations. And that's really important because um, I think the minute we start to link areas more explicitly in our teaching, we stop making maths just like a list of random stuff to be memorized. And we start building a student's schema and if we can do that and just add in links here, there and everywhere, it's going to be it's going to make much more sense to them. It's going to be much easier for them to learn and to understand. But we need to be really clear about those links as well in order to do so effectively. Yeah, and that doesn't come overnight, does it? It doesn't those that that those links and that knowledge isn't something that we all start knowing when we begin teaching. We are. Uh, so many things I would teach differently from earlier on with what I know now. It's 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 quite frightening at times. And those links, um, you can't necessarily build them in a linear way with students either. Um, you can only you can only build them, I think, by revisiting things periodically and in different contexts. And through that, hopefully your students will start to see more of this bigger picture that you see, but you have to afford them opportunities to do so as often as you possibly can. Absolutely. Julia, you've made some really nice reflections as well in the chat. Would I be able to bring you in here to, to, to um, maybe ask Gemma a question? Yeah, certainly, Gemma. I, I, throughout the book, I love the way that you've you've linked it into the mathematical history, the historical developments, um, and I find that quite often students are actually quite interested when you start talking about Cantor and Pythagoras and, and recognising that they're actually real people um, and where a lot of these things come from, and also the language, the depth of language that you use, you've got exponential constants here, I've written some of them down, multiplicands, um, multiple to be multiplicative identities, bijections, you know, we wouldn't necessarily use them with our students, would we? Or is that as important for us as teachers to, to get our head around the language? Or is this something that we could quite happily use with the students as well? Does it impress them? Students like being impressed by stuff and they like to feel like they can use what they might perceive as big clever words. Yeah. Um, because it helps them to 
to feel successful um, that links ever so slightly into something I was thinking about earlier on talking to a, a primary school teacher who said that she's always really surprised how much they teach in year six that then almost seems to get forgotten when the students that, that are fed that it, it was spe specifically talking about the school that her students move on to it seems to get forgotten um, and I think we <sighs> We need to remember that our students love to feel like they're being clever and like they are learning something new or exciting. And vocabulary can be a really important part of that, but it's deeper than just that as well, because um, when you have a shared vocabulary, you are able to communicate more succinctly, you are able to communicate more clearly. And I really believe that it's one, it's a very important job of ours to make sure that um, I help my students to have that vocabulary. So um, I, I make a point of weaving in opportunities to practice new or difficult vocabulary over and over and over again. And I get them to use it when they're talking back to me so that it becomes part of their repertoire, if you like. Um, and in doing that, it means we can build and build and build um, and it all forms part of their learning. I think the minute you start to kind of remove complex mathematical words, I say complex mathematical words, I don't mean that because not words aren't complex. They're only complex if you make them complex. If you use them over and over again, they're not complex. So um, it, it's really important that we don't artificially dumb down what we teach by being scared of or trying to avoid certain words. Some of them might not be necessary. So the word multiplicand, for instance, you probably don't really need to use it. But if you want to and you choose to, great. Whereas others, I think, are really important. So identity and the idea of an additive identity and a multiplicative identity being a different thing, but how they both have the same kind of effect when dealing with additional multiplication. And that's what this word identity refers to. That's really important because we build on that as we go through as well. You know, if you get to say, I don't know, matrices, for instance, we have the identity matrix in, in sixth form. Um, um, it's yeah certain bits of vocabulary I think are much more important than others others are just interesting if you want to use them great but certain ones we should try and weave in as much as possible absolutely I completely agree about the vocabulary aspect if we're using it all the time as our normal way of communi communicating precisely then students will just get used to that and they thoroughly enjoy being able to as you say sound clever and um, Wayne you've got a really good question in the chat do you mind if I bring you in here if you prefer me to read out your question then just let me know That's all right. I'll ask your question for him. Um, sometimes people have children or pets or whatever at home. So it's, <laughs> it's just nice to check. So Wayne has said, what misconceptions have people, and I'll, I'll put that back to you as well, if I may, Gemma, what misconceptions have you maybe come across when using a double number line? And is there a specific way maybe to address them if there tend to be some general ones? The main issue I've come across is, um, more one to do with uh, measurement and incorrectly scaling um, so if you're trying to draw a number line from 0 to 100 and say 0 to 60 correctly placing the intervals from say the 0 to 60 line that can be very challenging for some students um, but then that leads me down a couple of directions of thinking. So one is, do I just need to be very careful about the numbers that I choose? Because once um, 
once I taught the concept of scaling with maybe if I'm going to do it using drawing number lines, using numbers that are easier to draw and compare, then do I need to do I need them to draw number lines with more complicated numbers if they have got the concept and they can then do the process? Um, so that's one, I suppose that's one way of getting around it, just being very careful about what you pick. Um, any other misconceptions to do with it? Hmm. Not particularly, no, but then I tend to give most double number lines. If I remember using it in class, I tend to give them the number line. So it might be something like you have uh, a number line from, say, I, I can't think of the top of my head, but let's say we have a question where you've got to compare some quantities and the number line might be drawn for both quantities with two of the, the equivalent numbers marked. Um, and then one of them marked and a question mark by the one underneath and they have to work out what the equivalent or the missing number is. Um, and so in most cases, I would present it drawn. And in most questions where you need to use a double number line, you don't merely need to draw lots of intervals along it. You can just mark on a couple of numbers on each line. So it doesn't really matter if you haven't quite drawn it to scale. Um, so I guess, yeah, my, my approach would be to give them pre-drawn at first until you've got students to the point where they can draw them quite simply and approximately themselves, at which point it's fine because it's just an aid to help them think about the calculations involved. Yes, and I suppose you're not testing them on whether they can draw double number lines because that's yeah. that's not something you're trying to check they can do. It's a, it's like a bar model, is it? I don't mind if some of the boxes are slightly bigger or smaller than others as long as they they know what they're doing with it. It's it's not about being accurate there necessarily. Um, and Julia's just pointed out in the chat that Johnny's made a, a number line on MathSpot, which actually I haven't hadn't noticed. So I shall go away and have a look at that. So thank you, Julia. Yeah, that website is just the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, Dave, I'll bring you in if I may, because you've raised your hand. Cody, thanks, Rhea. I was just, um, I was quite interested in sort of zooming out a little bit then and looking at what it might um, look like within um, a learning episode or a lesson. Um, and how we might use it sort of alongside um, with, with examples, with procedural knowledge, with um, teaching students the steps as um, reading um, Anne Watson's latest book and, and she sort of compares and talks about um, the, the ways that, that we learn and, and, um, and how that sort of modelled example approach and the, the sort of pros of that and the, the cognitive theory behind it and then the, the, the sort of multiplicative thinking that, that really needs to underpin and she uses examples like how to learning how to skateboard and, um, and learning how to use a mobile phone and it just really made me sort of take a step back and, and I'm very much a teacher that, that probably goes too far the side of I'm going to teach a process, I'm going to teach a method um, and I'm going to make sure you've got those isolated pieces of knowledge and then we'll go on and we'll start to really think about this and I don't necessarily give the students I think enough time to go through that reasoning process, that thinking process and I just wanted to know sort of what your, your views were with how it sort of sits alongside and, and how that bigger picture might look in terms of using some of these great ideas. That's the biggest question, isn't it? I, what, I know, um, sorry. I don't mean big as, in, well, big as in we can talk forever about it, but also it's hugely important um, and it's hugely debated because there are some people who think that you should never teach a procedure until you've just taught, taught the kind of underlying concept. And then there are other people that say that concepts only come after procedures have become fluent. And, and uh, I'm going to be really boring here and sit somewhere in the middle <laughs> because I think... 
think they go hand in hand and I think it varies from concept to concept. So sometimes it's easier to learn a procedure and then think about why it works. Differentiation for me is a really classic one there. And I know that someone like Peter Matic would, or would argue with me a lot about it, but there we go. Um, whereas something like a double, double number line and multiplicative thinking, actually students have gone through the whole of primary school learning about multiplication. They're pretty good on the whole at multiplication. So talking conceptually in this realm is actually something that's pretty easy to do straight away because you're not building on, you're not building from scratch here. Um, so I, I think for me, using a representation, let's stick with the double line for now, but using any representation, um, it only really works if you use it regularly and repeatedly and in varying contexts so that it becomes a part of uh, the student's arsenal for solving, uh, for solving any all, all types of questions. So if I just use it in a lesson on, uh, say, ratio, and then never again, it's not going to be helpful. It's only helpful if you use it regularly. Um, I really like what came out of uh, the, 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 uh, the paper that was written by Loughborough University recently about how they want to do some curriculum projects. And the one thing they said was there are multiple representations that you can use across the whole of mathematics. Um, but they strongly believe that you should you should pick your representations and stick to them and use those, that use a smaller number of rep representations consistently. And I think that's probably where I'm at. Um, because it's very easy to think with our expert head on that a representation communicates an idea really clearly and therefore because it because because it helps us make sense of something it will help our students make sense of something it's easy to think that but if we take a step back and try and remove our expert head which is very which is notoriously difficult and think of it from a student's point of view and a novice student's point of view a new representation can be just as confusing as a new process. So we need to make sure that representations, if we are gonna use them, are woven throughout everything that we do so that they don't become uh, an obstacle or an extra bit of cognitive load. Oh, absolutely. So one of, the, one of the things that I've been using a lot more in the last couple of years is ratio tables. And then when I think about ratio tables and all the different possible uses for it. I was supporting my friend's daughter yesterday who was struggling with distance, speed and time. And I said, oh, don't worry about the triangle. Let's do it with ratio tables because I know you like those because we now use them so prevalently with so many di different types of questions. She's really confident in using that approach. And if I was to introduce her to all the different types of ways that I can think of to do it, as you say, it can confuse her. And while one might be slightly more efficient or slightly preferred, it doesn't mean it's benefiting the learner. No, absolutely. And it, I think ratio tables, in that example specifically, something like a ratio table has the added bonus of simultaneously working with a procedure and helping with the underlying concept in a way that a formula triangle doesn't because it's purely procedural with a formula triangle. Yeah, it just it just helps with so many different ways. And um, I just think it's great. So Harry has got a question. Um, Harry, would you like to ask that question? Or would you like me to ask it on your behalf? No, it's okay. Yeah, just a quick question in terms of consistency. I can see how that's, that's really helpful. 
if you've got a new class who might not have seen some representations before, but you're really keen to use it, um, I guess balance between having consistency across the department for different age groups and, and different teachers as well. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I used to think when I was earlier on in my teaching that autonomy as a teacher is the most important thing. Um, and I do think autonomy is hugely important for um, feeling like you're valued as a, as a professional, but autonomy can take different forms. And sometimes um, professional autonomy in um, how you teach maths uh, can actually make uh, an inferior experience for the students. So this is a perfect example, really, because if I have my class in year seven and teach them something with ratio tables and they go to a different teacher in year eight and they do and they build on their learning, which they should be doing, but using different methods or different techniques and different representations. And then in year nine, it happens again and it's all different again. All that's going to happen is we're making it harder for them and we make, we, we, we're putting obstacles in their way. And that's that for me is overrides any sense of the importance of professional autonomy in that regard. So when I was head of department, uh, we we start. I, I inherited the department where the only kind of decision about consistency we had was to do with um, bra expanding brackets. And the previous head of department said we're all going to do it using a grid method, all the way up to polynomial division at A level. We're going to do it using grids. And I carried that on because it linked into area models and it was a it was a decision. It wasn't necessarily the be a better there might have been other decisions that, that could have been used that were equally valid, but it was a decision and we were all going to do the same thing. And it meant that it guaranteed that every single student would go from class to class, teacher to teacher, year to year, and just build upon and add little layers on top of what they'd done previously without having to relearn new methods or anything like that. Um, so what I tried to do was build in more of that increasingly. So we did it through discussions and departmental time and these kinds of things. And we got to the point where we had relatively consistent methods for lots of things then. And I think it's and I think it made the student experience better for it. It really helps to develop staff as well, doesn't it? I think I was in a department and we didn't just, I don't remember discussing how I would, you know, subject pedagogy, how I might do something in a department meeting or in any mentor or line management sessions or anything for at least 10 years. So I hadn't come through a system like that. And then um, a, a couple of years into being a head of department, we thought, yeah, let's have a look at this because actually how we're factorizing quadratics is very different experience for students from one class to the next. And we're noticing that when they come through into sixth form into our A-level lessons, can we make that better? And I was using the underground maths resource at the time that came out and the, and the teacher resources from there. But for, for me, it was something actually only done relatively recently in my teaching career it isn't something that I've done beforehand had you experienced that or is it is it just my experience or are other people doing it elsewhere no I think I think your experience is quite normal actually um it was certainly my experience and through all the people I've spoken to over the years I think it's a it's a relatively new it's gaining traction more and more I think is the fairest thing to say um 
I wonder whether it's gaining traction more and more because of Ofsted and this idea of the importance of uh, the implementation of the curriculum. Um, and they have deliberately said that it's important that a head of department understands the way a curriculum is implemented and understand and, and make sure it's implemented consistently across the department. And I think that's probably pushed that agenda forward a little bit more, although people were talking about it before then. Um, it's really important, isn't it? Because like I said before, the our job is to make sure that our students leave us as successful as they possibly can be at mathematics. And anything, and we're, we're a team in order to achieve that goal because those students will probably see five different maths teachers across years seven to 11, maybe more if you have split classes. Um, and you have to work as a team on that because they are all of our responsibility. And we've had this kind of perverse performance management system for years, whereby results in year 11 are based on that, just the year 11 teacher and what they've done. And it's grossly unfair because those students are a product of their entire schooling from primary school all the way up. Um, so for the time that we have them, it's, it, it, it's really important that we make sure that um, their experience is consistent and that it's consistently good across everybody so it's important that we work as a team to make that happen yeah wayne's mentioned you've mentioned there wayne the methods booklets that we've been sharing and developing and um, etc uh, across the trust that's great and josh i absolutely agree that departmental meetings are a fantastic place to do this and a lot of places now are rebranding them and they're not department meetings there's actually sort of team cpd or department cpd so it it means that they are less likely to lean to it being an administrative experience or opportunity because that can often, you know be done in an email. Kirsty, I haven't forgotten that you're there. I was just being selfish for a few minutes. I'm very sorry if I could bring you in there. Hi, good evening, everybody. Thanks, Rhiannon. Um, actually, you've already covered some of the things I was going to talk about, which was um, consistency across the department and how important that was. Um, and partly how you can prioritise which which methods you want your department to use. So, for example, we're rolling out White Rose at the moment, um, and bar modelling is just through everything in, in White Rose in Year Seven, and I think it's fantastic. Not everybody's sold on it, um, so I, I quite like a, an idea from you, Gemma, if you can, about how you can help perpetuate that through the department. But the other thing that just I got thinking about while you were talking there is um, another thing White Rose say a lot is about using different techniques and different representations to consolidate and deepen understanding. Um, so what you've just said there is, you know, always use the grid method for factorizing, for example. I wouldn't do that personally. I wouldn't make that choice because I want them to be able to do it in different ways. That might be a good way to start, but I know for a fact that my students are gonna have different techniques by the end of an IGC course, because I'm gonna have shown them and they'll have a different preference. So I wondered if you had anything to say about that. Um, so everything I've said so far is kind of a combination of previous thinking and me thinking out loud. Um, and the consistency thing um, is, I, I'm, I'm really, really convinced on that one. And see, for me, if I had a department where people were um, kind of averse to, uh, all going along consistent methods 
I would start by appealing to this idea of we've got to make it the best possible experience for our students and this is going to improve that. But also I would make sure that you've got regular time to discuss methods and to discuss ways of teaching. Um, that you kind of direct so you talk about pros and cons of different approaches and you can kind of bring people around to a general agreed way of thinking through discussion but they have to feel like they're a part of it if people think like something's being imposed upon them then they're not going to be bothered and they're going to do it reluctantly and they're not going to do it very well so you have to genuinely make people a part of what you're doing which is difficult but that's one of the beauties of it as well because if something was easy then we'd all be doing it wouldn't we um, and then your so remind me your other question. It was just about um, sort of how to sell it. It's not not another gimmick, but you sort of said that, haven't you, about bringing them in and um, giving them a buy into it. And so the other thing was the argument that giving a lot of uh, a lot of representation to the same yeah. idea will give yeah. you different understanding. So I suppose that's the one where I can see pros and cons. Um, and I wonder whether it varies from group to group. I wonder whether for some of my students who find maths more difficult, uh, a smaller number of techniques might be better. And perhaps for those students who come to grips with things more quickly, um, maybe they would be better placed to see multiple representations. Um, that's something that I would want to debate with people because I'd be really interested to hear different uh, different thoughts on that. But that would be my first thought on it, really. And it's not a bad thing to show the multiple representations if they can cope with it. I think what you probably have to weigh up is whether or not the multi -repre multiple representations are going to genuinely help them or whether it's going to add a layer of complexity that they're therefore going to struggle more with. That's Thanks, brilliant. Thanks, and all we've got to think about is if we use Hegarty maths or Corbett maths and how that might differ from what we do in lessons as well. And it's just that awareness, isn't it? Um, Sadiq, you put your hand up. Uh, yes, I did. Um, I was wondering if I could ask a question. It's, it's sort of going back to, you know, the idea of scaling um, and multiplication and not so much about consistency of methods. But OK, um, it is related to the idea of multiple representations. Um, and I know you've mentioned um, Pete Mattock already and I was just I think I recall a conversation between him and I think it was Chris Bolton and it was just it was interesting to me and it's really it was something I've not thought about and it's if we talk about vectors those are kind of one-dimensional objects that we're scaling um, and it's sort of comparing those with say arrays or when we then sort of work with algebra tiles and um, they're, they're kind of two-dimensional um, I've never really thought about, I know they're not consistent, but but do you know what I mean? Like how, how easily students can grasp what we're really trying to do with those. And Gemma, I know you mentioned as well that you were told not to go into sort of geometry um, when, when you were writing the things. So um, you were kind of limited uh, in that sense. Um, no, I was just wondering if you'd if you sort of given any thought to dimensions, because I certainly haven't, which is probably why I haven't asked the question very well. But sort of the idea of scaling in one dimension versus multiplying and getting more than one dimension, if that makes any kind of sense. It, it, no, it completely does. And it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because if you, when we use an algebra tile, for instance, we define the area of the basic tile as being one. Um, whereas when we use a vector, we're talking about the length of the line being one. Um, and therefore, like you say, scaling in one dimension. 
if we I'm going to stick with the idea of an algebra tile for a minute because I'm thinking out loud around what you say. So when we have the X algebra tile, it's still got width of one and length or height of X. So its area is X, which means the scale factor from one to X is X. And it's only when we then stretch it in two dimensions that we get the X squared tile. So we're not losing consistency there. But what we, are, what we are doing then is having a completely different model to if you're thinking about a, multiplic a multiplication uh, as an array, aren't we? Like you, like you mentioned, um, because if you've got something like four times three, I spoke about a vector taking a, a vector of length four and multiplying, stretching it out by length three. If you represent it as a four by three rectangle, we're now thinking in terms of area rather than length. So there is a potential disconnect there, isn't there? Because you've got this, this, this potential disconnect between, uh, between dimensions. What I'm wondering, my hesitation is because I'm wondering whether or not it becomes an issue for students because I've genuinely never met the issue and now I'm wondering if I'm overthinking it. I, th I think I probably am myself because I don't, I don't recall the issue the, the sort of where this came from in my head was just thinking about the double number line actually from a bit earlier and just thinking that's effectively giving us the same information as say a sort of a direct proportion graph mm -hmm. but it's sort of easier in a sense to to understand what's going on there if that makes sense yeah, well, yeah, because you've got this added layer of complexity with the direct proportion graph of just graphs in general. Um, yeah. And students, <laughs> to use the word, the phrase I've heard repeatedly, I hate graphs. I hate graphs. Stop doing graphs. Even at A level, they said they tell you, why do you have to draw graphs? I hate them. Um, and, and they just find them difficult, don't they? Um, but there's another example. Sorry, I'm going to go. I'm not even going to answer your question now, but it's just popped in my head. No, that's fine. It was just something like <laughs> there's another me. example of something that I think we probably don't expose them to regularly enough. We do like a unit on linear graphs and then a bit later, maybe next year, they might meet a quadratic graph. And because they're not regularly exposed to it, they don't become fluent in it. Um, whereas there are all sorts of opportunities to build it in in multiple places. And direct proportion is another perfect example, isn't it? Where the uh, where we have the idea of the uh, the scale factor being the gradient of the line and these kinds of things. So we another way of linking in uh, things that might seem completely disconnected, but actually aren't disconnected if we build it in. But sorry, I know that's nothing to do with what you were saying. Um, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm going to think about it more. But my gut reaction is that it's probably not too much of an issue. And it's probably something that we think about in more depth, the more expert we get. But when you first meet it, it might, it's probably not an obstacle, going back to this idea of area versus length. But I'll think about it more, Sudeep. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think I agree. I, it's not something that I, I recall ever being an issue with any student, um, you know, if they've been introduced to even a sort of bar model, it's it's not really like an algebra tile because even though we give it some thickness, it's still really a one-dimensional scaling we're doing. Um, but dimension is important though, isn't it? Because when I mentioned at the very start of this about how you have you can compare two quantities in an additive way, where I talked about two distances, um, or and and in that uh, context, your comparison has units. Whereas if you could, were to compare two things in a multiplicative way, your comparison is dimensionless, isn't it? 
your scale factor. So dimension is important all, in all of this, but it's one of those things that I think is for us to think about and not to really worry the students about until they get to a point where they are advanced enough to consider these things because these are very complex ideas. Yeah. No, th thanks. Um, yeah, I probably need to think about it a lot more myself before asking such questions, really. But there's a perfect example of why this is so important, because, you know, I, I wrote, like I said, I wrote this in 2018 and I've been teaching at that point 14 years and um, some of the things in it I've only started to, I would say, I've only started to think about properly since I wrote it. And then you've just brought up something again that's made me think, oh, I've never thought about that in that way before. So now I've got something else to think about. And that's why it's really important to keep on thinking about the mathematics, because you might it might make you change what you do, or it might just reinforce that you, what you're doing at the moment is, is a good way to do it. But if you never stop and think and ask yourself those questions, how do you know if you're doing it in the best way? Yeah. And that clarity, isn't it? That awareness of that the differences and the connections means that it can it can only enhance what we do because we are now aware of it a little bit more. And Carl, that was that was some of the some of the comments in the chat are absolutely fantastic. Dave, you've got your hand up. Uh, yeah, I just uh, before I just love um, these conversations for that because it does just give you that opportunity to be able to reflect and, and think about um, does that fit with what my perception of, of quality teaching looks like or, or have I now just changed my disposition from that and that's really got me reflecting and I'll be yeah, I'll be taking that one away with me to think about but I tend to agree Joe with what you said there um, and and also just reflecting then on the um, the idea of multiple representations and and your your ideas on that I think again I agree and. Um, my reflection around that was that it was coming very much to sort of novice to expert journey and the idea of novices maybe having one one two methods that you you learn and you learn while it's um and there's more procedural you're gaining more knowledge um and as you become expert then the multiple representations i think start to come in because um the students are going to be looking for those links and they are going to be um sort of using examples um less often than the, the examples could have that negative effect and um, and so, so I just I did really think that it does depend on the, the students you're teaching, and I think it, that spectrum really helps me to make that decision. So it's just a reflection that I had for for people to either comment on or or, or help to to further. And it's, I I, I want to add there that it really is important to consider all of this in the context of the group you have in front of you. Um, Julia mentioned something in the chat earlier about how you can build students' confidence by getting them very good at maybe doing a procedure, and that's so true. And especially when you have students who find mathematics harder, if you can make them feel successful at something, you can then build on it. But if you're if you're doing things in a way that they always feel like it's just hard and they can't master it and they can't get to grips with it you're not going to build their confidence. And in for certain groups of students, confidence building is almost as important as learning mathematics itself. Um, Richard, you've asked a question in the chat. Would you like to ask that or would you like me to ask it on your behalf? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I've, can you hear me by the way? Yeah, all loud and clear. And um, one of the things I've, I've, I've got a year eight group who have got like lower attainment this year. And one of the things I've really tried to drill down with them and one, something I've really struggled with is they have a very fuzzy idea of when a relationship is multiplicative and when it's additive. So they constantly get confused and, and, and I'm, I'm having some success, but also when, how, what methods do you find are best to kind of 
really demonstrate and really, really kind of reinforce the idea of when we're supposed to use a multi multiplicative um, method and when we're supposed to use an additive method? That's such a difficult question. Sometimes I find that simplifying the numbers involved can help them di to direct them to think in the right way. So um, even if you reduce it down to, if I doubled this one, would that one also double? And very often students can think about it when the numbers are as simple as doubling. Or if I were to halve this one, would this one also halve? If you can answer yes to that question, then we're dealing with multiplying. <laughs> yeah, Harvey's added in dimensional analysis. Yeah, um, that that approach I often find very helpful. Um, I'm going to ponder that one a little bit more, Richard, if you don't mind, and get back to you on it because because it is a really difficult one, and there are so many students who will try and just. You see the classic one with recipes, don't you? And if if it, the recipe is for four four cookies instead of two, they think, oh, I've added two there, and therefore they'll add two to all the ingredients. And, and it's a very specific misconception, but it does crop up over and over again. Um, that would be my first approach. Simplify it down and ask it with much, much simpler numbers. Just that question, if I double this one, will this one also double? Um, if so, then you need to multiply. But I will think about that a bit more. Sorry, rubbish answer. It, it makes me think as well about um, on the uh, MCETM, I've got a video. Is it called Stretching the Spring? Is that the right one, Charlotte? I can't remember. There's an MCETM video when students are looking at what what would happen if a string stretched, that spring stretched, and what happened. It is, isn't it, Charlotte? It's the one with the red dots and the blue dots. And in that discussion, the students are really lent to thinking additively rather than multiplicatively. Have I remembered that right? Yeah, I think so. So I've, I've drawn a, a spring actually earlier when you mentioned the ICAMS project, because I'm pretty sure, I mean, they used, um, there was a curly K thing that had been enlarged. That was part of the ICAMS, but I'm, I'm sure that the spring came as part of the ICAMS project as well. Um, I mean, I know Professor Smudge um, on Twitter, but um, I forgot, uh, Dietmar was very much involved with that. And I know uh, Hel um, Helen was also very involved with that as well. So she would definitely know um, whether where the origin of that question came from. But it was used as part of an NCTM video on um, multiplicative thinking. Um, and it was, it was really interesting. They were so stuck on additive. Where would this point stretch to um yeah and it was completely additive you can see it's why it happens because they learn so much about addition um and even when students in primary school first learn about multiplication they learn about it as repeated addition um and addition it is easier and they it is more embedded so you can see why there are groups of students who resort to it or default to it um, perhaps we need to make more of multiplication at secondary school and perhaps we need to stop and make sure that we don't focus so much on addition and spend more time on multiplication. Something like proportional reasoning, like I mentioned earlier on, I used to spend far too little time on it. Um, I think the, 
the idea of just what makes a, a multiplying relationship rather than an adding relationship is something that we ought to try and build more explicitly on the whole into our curricula and spend a lot more time on. I think if we do, then for, lot, for huge numbers of students, it would mean we would save time later on because they would have that. The, the students who can do it have an intuitive sense that it works, don't they? We're talking now about the ones who don't have that intuitive sense and maybe it's because they haven't had enough exposure to it. Sadeep, your hand is still up. Is that a legacy from previously or is that a new question? No, uh, that was from previously. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I'll be bringing you into the room again shortly anyway, because sadly we are coming up to half past. So I didn't know if anybody had anything else while we still have, um, have Gemma in the room. So, I mean, my brain is, is already on overload right now. Um, Dave, your hand is up. Um, it's not so much a question, it's just a reflection on the, the book itself, if anybody hasn't got it yet and, and are thinking about it, because um, for me, it was one of those books, and I've heard so many other people say, I wish I'd had that when I was in my early years of teaching. I, I must, must be in double figures now for people who've approached me and said, oh, I, I want... I wish I had that. And, and also um, just the way it's written, um, when I look through the quizzes, I look through them and I think, oh, I can do some of these. Um, and uh, But I have a quizzes is really exciting and really, really fun to do. But also as somebody who's been teaching 15 to 20 years now, I'm, I'm getting loads every time I read through it. So I'll read through a chapter again and again, and there'll be something new for me to ponder, to for me to consider and, and just just think it's a book for, for people like throughout um, their careers. And I think, I think it's just a brilliant book to cover, to cover all aspects of teaching as well. And my first question was going to be, when is the geometry one coming out? Um, but I think that's been more than answered. But, but yeah, I was, um, I, I spent so many times going, right, well, I want to, want to think about geometry and I go to the book um, and yeah, I just think it's a fantastic read. So uh, just thank you for writing it. I'm really glad you said that. Um, it, my motivation was, I was thinking initially, um, what would I have enjoyed to have read when I first started? And it's, you know, as someone with a maths degree who then found that I was teaching things and thinking, well, I've no idea why that works because I've never had to think about why it works. I've only had to, I've only learned it as a student and moved on. So I, I stopped and went back and thought, first of all, what are the kinds of discussions I've had with people over my career so far where I've gone, surely we ought to know that, but also what would I have, benefited from when I was starting out. So it's, it's, it's lovely to hear you say that because at least I know I did something right there. So that's good. No, absolutely. Thank you so much for writing that book. I, I put in the chat earlier, I wish this had been published when I had started my teaching journey because it would have just saved so much and I'd have felt so much more con confident in what I was doing much earlier as well, rather than still feeling I've got so much to learn now. And I know that's never going to go away, but there are so many obvious things when I read what you've written that I hadn't considered in the same way before. So thank you once again. And Sadiq, if I may bring you in here, is that okay? Because you have that um, fantastic task of doing the session takeaway. And it's one of those things that I know for other people that have done it, it's also quite a dynamic thing as well as a session goes through. So good luck with this one. <laughs> Okay, well, I see we're at 5.30, so I'll try to keep it short, but I'll start by saying, first of all, um, Gemma, thank you so much for, for writing the book. Um, I read it, I think in 2019, um, and as you know, someone with a maths degree, uh, I still learned a lot from it. Um, so yeah, and I'll mention a couple of things actually as I go through. Um, in terms of takeaways, 
sort of the first big one, I just really liked sort of the clarity of, of one of the things you said really early on. It's just, we can compare quantities um, in different units of measurement. This is about double number lines. Um, and it's just, yeah, something very simple, I guess, to think of, but not something I had considered before, the idea of different units of measurements being in there. Um, sort of second thing uh, that I think I'll have to consider more carefully with students because I don't tend to do multiplication or haven't in secondary school that much because you think they already know it. But for me, working in alternative provision right now, it's actually a much bigger deal. Um, so yeah, just sort of getting right down to the heart of, you know, multiplying by something between zero and one, making, making things smaller, um, that kind of idea. And then my next takeaways are to do with vocab. We talked a lot about vocab. Um, and I think I'm exactly the same as you, that I've used squash and stretch a lot in the context of transformations um, of graphs, you know, enlargements, but not so much with multiplication. And I do think that's an easy sort of win that if fed in earlier would make the later things easier to grasp. Um, so bit, bit of vocab and then I'm actually just a general fan of vocab in maths and linking across sort of cross curricula. So there's sort of little bits that, that I liked. So I never knew until, you know, I read this chapter about, um, you know, the speculation about Aleph um, being the first letter of the Hebrew for infinity. Um, I've never, never come across that idea before. Um, and then you mentioned as well, like weaving, weaving in these links, um, you know, and trying to be clear about them. Um, and yeah, even just things like multiplicative identity. I know I wouldn't have come across that phrase until doing pure five or pure six back in my, when I did A-level, but they are simple enough that if we use them, students can grasp them and understand their importance early on. Um, and sort of leading on from that, just any representations as well, like what you've said, that I think is so important. We need to use things regularly um, and, you know, across different contexts. So if we're using, you know, whatever representation, um, you don't want them to see it once and then never again, or move on to different ones with no links between years. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, um, someone put in the, in the chat about Joe's book. Um, I think there's been a lot more conversations about uh, methods as well, um, but it's true for representations true, um, too that we want to yeah just be using these things really regularly um and then my last takeaway i think is just based on things i'm seeing in the chat uh dimension analysis i know it's not by that name a part of what we do at gcse anymore but i think that, that you know it is it is really valuable and there is relevance because we do things like um kinematics graphs and just the idea of understanding why the area you know um under a sort of velocity time, but what's that got to do with distance, that kind of thing, um, just got me thinking about those. So yeah, those are my takeaways. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. I guess Dave's giving you a huge thumbs up there as well, because that, <laughs> that was just brilliant. It just shows the range of things that we've discussed today and how much we've picked your brain, Gemma. That was, that was just fantastic. Thank you. And also just a reminder that talking about maths and beautiful things we've got Dan Piercy on the 11th where we'll be talking about mathematical beauty and I, I can't wait to um, 
look at a few more of those aspects of different ways that we can investigate maths a little bit more there and, and enrich what we do in schools even more. So thank you everybody so much for today. I'm going to stop the recording there.